All right, we are in the book of 1 John together today. 1 John, chapter 3. 1 John, chapter 3, and we're beginning in verse 11. Let's read through verse 15 together. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who is of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. And so if you've been with us as we've been walking through 1 John together, you know that we have come from somewhere significant. But John seems to be making his point again and again. And what he's doing is he's dividing up two classifications of people. And those two classifications of people are those who are the children of God and those who are the children of the devil, the children of Satan. And that might seem very rudimentary to us. And we might wonder, why is John making this distinction between two groups of people? And the reason being is because there was a bunch of people who had left their congregation, who had left their church. And in fact, John is saying they had abandoned the gospel altogether. But he's saying, don't worry. Because it's not as though the children of God have abandoned God. Because if they have abandoned the gospel, they were never God's children to begin with. And this is the point that John has made very clear to us. And so he's continuing on in this same, uh, this same light of helping us to understand that we have been adopted into the family of God for those who are children of God. That's what makes us children of God after all. We've been adopted into his family. And now we are sons and sons of God have an inheritance We are those who are the children of God who have an inheritance, and that inheritance is more valuable than than we can even wrap our minds around. But that is ours. And so what is John telling us today? He's continuing to tell us that it's important that you have a clear understanding of who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. And he continues to make a further distinction this morning by way of an example. Did you hear the example? Actually, more of an illustration. And he gives us this illustration from the book of Genesis. And he starts to talk about Cain and Abel. And we're going to look at that story together. But first, he says this. Look at verse 11. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. From their initial hearing of the gospel, these believers were told it was pressed upon them as an essential, we might say, ingredient of the gospel, that for those who believe on Jesus Christ know that they ought to love. It is from the beginning, and he is referencing from the time that you heard the gospel from that beginning. You have known how important it is that we love one another. You know this to be true. If a person has genuine saving faith in the gospel, then they know that they should be loving one another. 
If you this morning are here and you have genuine saving faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ, you know that it's important that you love the children of God. I know that you know. But John isn't telling the children of God you don't know. He's saying you are having a hard time making a distinction of what this looks like in your life. And so he says, let's look at an example where it is very clear where someone was not loving his brother. Before we get to that, what does loving mean here? We should love one another. And if I just say that to you, well, I think we all might define love a little different. What does it look like to love a person in this circumstance? If someone is going through something in particular, and I say, what does it look like for us to love them? And I just, I ask the blanket question, do you think I'd get the exact same answer from everyone in the room? No. Because we all have a little bit de different definition of what it is to love someone. But what is being said here? What does it look like to love my brother and sister in Christ? What does it look like to love? What does love look like? What does it not look like? John really likes that part, doesn't he? He likes to make a contrast for us. He says, here's what love looks like, but here's how we're going to understand it, by what it definitely doesn't look like. That's how John helps us, and he's going to. But as we're looking at that, I have just two passages I'm going to read for you. They're, just, they're short, two verses each. And uh, what they're going to tell us is that we should love one another with the measure of love with which God has loved us. That's what loving one another looks like that I am to love you with that same measure of love that God has loved me. Do you love the person next to you with the same measure of love that your God has loved you? If you answer yes to that, I am, am fearful for you. Because you think that you've already arrived at the pinnacle, and yet you don't realize that, no, you're actually standing on the edge of a cliff. And with one change in the wind, it can blow you off and bring detriment both to you and the people around you because you don't realize that you are this close to hating your brother. What does it look like to love and what does it look like to hate? We should be warned because we want to make sure that we are loving to one another, right? And we want to make sure that we are loving one another. How? In what way? In what manner? with the same measure of love that your God has loved you in Jesus Christ. And how is that? Just two passages that I think really help. Jo uh, Jesus says, back in John 13, 34 and 35, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are to love one another. Do you hear it? How are we to love one another? The way that Jesus Christ himself has loved us. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Here is how the world and believers know that you are a disciple of Jesus Christ. How is it? The way that you love. So then, are you loving the way that your God loves you? Well, I don't know. How does God love me? Just one more before I clarify that. 1 John 4, 10 and 11. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. And he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So beloved, if God so loved us, 
then we ought to also love one another. So do you see the reason for our love for one another? The reason for our love for one another is because of the measure of love that God has given us. What does that look like? In all the songs that we've been singing this morning, a singular truth has come through. And if you missed it, then you missed the words. The singular truth that came through in all the songs were this, that we were rebellious towards God and yet he lavished his love on us anyway. We were running in disobedience to God, hating God, haters of God and one another. We were hating him and yet he loved us anyway. So I wonder if we look at the way that we love, if we say, I only love those people that love me. You're wrong. I will only do something good for someone who has first done something good for me. I will only go out of my way for someone who, for someone who has gone out of their way for me. Wrong. I will only accept someone if they first accept me. Wrong. The way that God has loved us is that in our rebellious state, he loved us. Do you see that? It's unbelievable that we creatures created by Almighty God were rebelling against him. And in our rebellion, in our hatred toward him, in our complete disregard for a lawmaker, lawgiver, and judge, we had disregard for him. And in the middle of our disregard, he said, I'm going to love them. How? God loved us so much. He loved us in this way that he sent his one and only son for us. Do you see how much God has loved you in your rebellion? So when people are in their rebellion, in their sin, how are you loving that person? Do you see it? Do you see how we are on the edge of a cliff and it is only that we're just, we're barely making it through. But it's only if you recognize the great danger that you're in that you're going to be warned that I better not step off this way because that's hate. I better be careful to go this way because I'm going to be tempted to go this way. But here is only ruin and detriment and disobedience. I need to go this way. This way is the way God loved me. He gave of his very self for me in my rebellion. And so this ought to be the way that we are loving one another. Tell me, is this the way that you are loving one another? Or when there is that disobedient, sinful mindset, someone hurts you, you push them away. And you say, only when, only when you have made up for what you have done, will I love you. Imagine if that is the way that your God loved you. But that is not the way that God loved us. He made a way. He sent his love. He gave forgiveness. He gave mercy. He gave grace. Is your love for one another marked by mercy, gentleness, grace, forgiveness? Because if it's not, then we are not loving one another as God has called us to love. And so he says, consider this. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. If you're leaving with something this morning, please leave with this. I will not be like Cain. 
But actually, it's very interesting because in your text, looking at verse 12, there is no imperative in the Greek. Uh, ESV renders it, do not be like. Uh, actually, because there's no imperative, it, it says, unlike Cain, who was of the evil one. But the imperative is implied. There's, there's a call on us implied here, right? Otherwise, why is he telling us the story? He's telling us the story because we ought to not be like that. So in your Bible, let's turn to Genesis chapter 4. And we're going to look at a few verses. David gave us a little bit of this uh, last week, but we're going we're to look at it in just a, from a different angle, a little bit more detail. <clears throat> Genesis 4, verses 1 through 16. And it says, And Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, the older one, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now, this is important details. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain was a worker of the ground. They had different jobs. In the course of time, who knows how long, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the first uh, of, the, of the fruit of the ground and Abel brought the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions now the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering but for Cain and his offering he had no regard so Cain was very angry and his face fell you get that imagery right you ever seen you ever been in a conversation you actually see someone's face turn angry the Lord said to Cain why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary or for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and he killed him. And the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? And he said that famous phrase, I don't know, am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground, from which it has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield to you its strength, and you will be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I will be a fugitive, I will be a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. The Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest anyone who find him should attack him. Cain went away from the presence of the Lord. He settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. We remember that story, but I wanted to read it again to give some clarity because sometimes when we get distance from a story, don't we kind of tend to forget some details? So I wanted to read that um, and make some very simple observations. Okay, so they each brought offerings according to their work and resources, right? Cain from the ground because he was a worker of the ground and Abel from his herd because he was a keeper of sheep. So it only makes sense that they bring resources from their work. Okay. Cain from the ground, Abel from his flock. Now, why um, was one accepted and one not? Hebrews 11.4 tells us this. 
by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. Through what? Through faith he was commended as righteous. Isn't that the whole point of Hebrews 11? Faith. God commending him by accepting his gift. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. So what's significant about Abel is that he had faith in his gift. And for Cain, that it was lacking faith. And for this, the Lord had no regard. Now, some have said, yeah, but the Lord likes animals more than, you know, offerings from the ground. And maybe that's why. He, he wanted a blood sacrifice. Well, the Lord delights in grain offerings as well and things from the ground. That's, that's okay. But then ultimately we know that the Lord is not delighted or satisfied in the blood of anything. He, he tells us that. Okay, so what exactly is happening here? We can be very generic and say that there was an offering brought um, in faith and it resulted in sacrificial worship. For Abel, he brought the first and best of his flock. Did you read that in the text? That's a good detail to know. Abel brought the first and the best of his flock. This is very important. And this is how we can see it working out in faith. If you give God your first and best, is that not a matter of faith? Because who wants that first and best? Well, I do. Right? But if I give to God the first and best, what is that saying? I have faith in the Lord as my provider, and he is worthy of my first and best. But for Cain, he simply offered a generic offering from the ground that we have no indication that it was the first and the best, and it was without faith. And so the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. Okay, so Abel had faith and it resulted in a sacrificial worship. But Cain did not have faith and this resulted in superficial worship. Do you see how that works? And before we move on, let's pull out this principle that's staring us in the face. That principle is this. Any act of worship without faith is not acceptable to the Lord. Any act of worship without faith is not acceptable to the Lord. I've said this before, but it warrants saying again because it's in our text. Just because you bring money and put it in the box, God says, well, you didn't do it in faith, but I needed that money, so thank you. You sang today, and it wasn't in faith, but thank you for singing because we needed some better voices because, <laughs> you know, some of them aren't so great, so good thing you were singing. Or you came to church today. Was it an act of faith to come to church? If it wasn't, then it's superficial. It's based on superficial premises. If you want to please God with your worship, worship in faith. And God has regard for that. Okay, so we, we continue on then. We should not be like Cain. The point that John is making is that Cain got very angry with Abel because the Lord had regard for his offering and not for his own. And it caused him to lash out and murder his brother. Why did he murder him? Good question. John asked the same question in the second half of verse 12. And why did he murder him? Here's the reason. Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. So make sure you're reading this properly. It's not saying the evil deed was murder. No, no, no. The evil deed came before the murder. 
the reason he murdered him is because he was already doing evil deeds. Do you see it? Why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. And this caused internal conflict that he couldn't cope with. And so what he did in response was he hated his brother, he was angry at his brother, and it turned into murder. Killed him. Now I feel better. Or did he? I really doubt it. Why did he murder him? Because he hated him, yes. But why did his hate lead to murder? What this did not do is cause him to fall on his face before the Lord and say, Oh Lord, what is it in me that you have not found worthy? Do you notice that that wasn't a response that Cain had? Just imagine two brothers standing here. One offers a gift to the Lord and the Lord says that he's pleased with it, he accepts it. You offer a gift to the Lord and the Lord says, hmm, I don't have any regard for this and I'm not accepting that. You have some options in front of you. You're standing at the edge of a cliff and what you want is to go this direction, but it's going to lead to ruin. But only if you recognize that you're standing there will you be warned against it and say, but I have to go this way. Sin is crouching at the door. It's desirous for you. But you must rule over it. Do you see that in this text that the desire for hatred of one another is crouching at the door at each one of us? Do you realize the danger is right there at the door? Or do you think it's so far away from you that you're not even careful about it? If you think it's so far away from you that you're not even concerned with hating in someone else, you're not going to put the effort in to try to love, are you? Because you think there's no danger. I'm a loving, gentle person. I don't even have to worry about that. But no, I'm telling you it's there. The scriptures are telling you it's there. So what's happening? Listen to this, Proverbs 29.10. Make sure and take a note of this. Proverbs 29.10. Bloodthirsty men hate one who is blameless and they seek the life of the upright. Did you hear that? Take, take the Proverbs for these general truth claims. Generally speaking, here's how the evil person works, is that they're going to see someone being righteous, and they're going to hate them. Why? Because they're righteous. I hate that about that person. Goody two-shoes, right? I'm not sure the origin of that phrase. It's a very interesting little phrase, but it's, you get the idea, don't you? Oh, you're always so good. Oh, you're always doing the right thing. Oh, you always are so calm and gentle and humble. Oh, aren't you always the perfect one? And you despise them for it. You felt it. You know the feeling. Because that sin is crouching at the door. You realize the door means it's right there, right? That's what the door means. You're at the door and sin is crouching at the door. You going to let it in? because it wants to overtake you. But you have to rule over it and say no. James 4, 1 through 3. What causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this? That your passions are at war within you. Listen to what he says next. 
you desire and don't have, so you, what's the word? Nobody knows? What do you do? When you desire and you don't have, you murder. You murder. We say, I have never killed anyone. Never. No. I, that would never be me. I don't kill people. But what is John about to tell us? That if you have hatred in your heart, guess what you are? A murderer. This is what causes quarrels and fights among us. Who? Who's the us? The church. The children of God. This is the danger. Do we see it? Are we aware? Do you know that you are right this close to hating the people next to you? But you must love them. Love them the way that God has loved you. Love them in their imperfections. Hold them accountable to God's truth, but in that, do it with love. Do you love them? Love them in faith. Because that's an act of worship to your God. But what is the core? What's the root? I would identify the root of this as selfish pride. The root of hatred is, indeed, selfish pride. What was the root of Cain's hatred to his brother? That his brother, brother, his brother, his brother was better than him. And he hated that reality. He was the older brother. He was the one to be better than his young brother who knows nothing. I'm the good one. But then his younger brother, simply acting out of faith to the Lord, offers his best. And his brother looks at him and his face falls with anger and he hates him for it. And what does he do? Hey, brother, come help me work in the field today. And what does his brother do? This, he goes and he helps his brother in the field. And as they are there in the field, kills him. I think this is a message to us who are faithful and who are loving the brothers. Don't be surprised when you simply stick your neck out to help and yet you get attacked. Don't let that stop you from loving. Did it stop Abel from acting in faith and love? No. But sometimes it does stop us, doesn't it? You, you do something to help somebody or you want to love them in a particular way, and you're met with something else that you don't like that's harmful to you, and what does that make you do? I'm not doing that again. You have created distance between me and you because I don't want you hurting me again. Is that the way God loves you? Have you ever hurt the Lord in your disobedience to him? So he runs from you then? Aren't you thankful that God doesn't run from you? We have a good God. We have an extremely loving God who in your rebellion loves you. And I think that if we can just wrap our minds around the great love that God has for us, it's going to transform us. It's going to completely change us. I want to love like my God loves me. I want to love you the way I have been loved by God. And do you feel that working inside your heart? Or is there selfish pride working in your heart that's causing you to hate? 
do you see the big difference? Why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? If you, if you do well, won't you be accepted too? Doesn't matter to me anymore. Being accepted by God is when he matters to me anymore. Taking revenge on my brother, that's what matters to me. Do you see how this selfish pride takes over? Has selfish pride ever taken over you and your heart and totally changed your intentions? Absolutely it has. Because sin is crouching at the door, but you must rule over it and love them and not hate them. Or maybe we remember these words from Philippians. Oh, didn't you love our time through Philippians, by the way? I did. I had more time in Philippians than you. It was incredibly uh, encouraging and challenging to go through the book of Philippians together. But do you remember this? Philippians 2, 2 and 3. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, listen to the rest, doing nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, counting others as more significant than yourself. Because that's the way we love one another. How different would things have been if Cain had already seen his brother as more significant than himself? how that story would have been so different. Because would he have had that selfish pride that rose up in his heart that made him hate his brother? Or would he have had a humility in him that said, good job, brother. Now, Lord, what is it about me that you have not found acceptable? And you fall on your face before him in humility and you say, what is it, Lord? Forgive me and accept me too. Completely different response. And so John continues, verse 13, and he says, so why did he murder him? We've, we've looked at that. And then he turns his attention off of his illustration to the church, and he says to them, listen. Now, here is an imperative, actually, in the text. Do not be surprised, you and me. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Hates you. Hate's a strong word. And yet it's the word we find here. Do not be surprised when the world hates you. What principle did we just come to understand? That when the unbelieving world sees our righteousness, how are they going to feel about it? It's going to be the story of Cain and Abel. That we are the ones offering something acceptable to God, but here's the thing, what offering has made us acceptable to God? Anything you gave? Did you have really good gifts that you gave the Father and he said, good job, I accept you based on that sacrifice? Is there anything you can offer God that he would say, good job, I accept you? Any good deeds, any good thoughts, anything, any of, anything you can offer God that he would accept you? You are not accepted by God based on your offering and your sacrifice, but based on the offering and sacrifice of Jesus Christ himself. And so the world sees us and says, how have you been accepted by God? And I have not. Now the world may, in that moment, take that as an opportunity to humble themselves before the Lord and cry out in faith. I too want to be accepted by the Lord. How do I do it? Well, not by anything you can do. 
but by having faith in God who did it all. But then, generally speaking, how is the world going to respond? They're going to hate you because you are doing righteous deeds and they are not and they're going to look at you and they're going to despise you in their heart. They're going to hate you. They're going to hate you. Beware and be warned of modern Christianities that attempt to take away the offense and try to make less of a distinction between us and the world. Because if there's less of a distinction between us and the world, guess what? You can have believers and unbelievers in a church together and they're going to get along. And we see this happening. But when unbelievers are here, they're going to have one of two responses. Love or hate. Love or hate. So when the unbelieving world sees our righteousness, they are definitely, this is the way they're going to see a bitter jealousy, hatred toward us in their hearts. You remember Jesus said in John 7, Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you. Why is that? Because John, again, said in another letter, the world is going to hate us. But it hates me because I testify, why? That its works are evil. Then he says later in chapter 15, he clarifies, if the world does hate you, know this, it's not hating you because of you. No, the world actually likes that part of you. That old self, that sinful self, no, the world loves that. And they're going to say, good job for that. They like that part of you. They're going to try to draw that out of you, actually. But no, the world is going to hate you, and if it does, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. This is the world we live in. Our call here, so don't be surprised. Are you surprised? When we do something in faith, honoring to the Lord, and the world looks at us and condemns us for it, hates us for it, stop being so surprised. That's how it's supposed to work. That's how it's going to be. The world is going to hate us because of what we do in faithfulness to our God. So don't try to take the edge off. Be faithful as the world hates you. By the way, the world hated Jesus. How did that end? In murder. We should not be like Cain. Look at verses 14 and 15 as we kind of close our time together. Verses 14 and 15. It says, We know that we have passed out of life and uh, out of death into life because, here's how we know, because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know, you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. You know that. You know this distinction already. But yet he's telling them anyway. We know this distinction already, but we need to be told again today. Here is the warning. So two points here, one from verse 14, one from 15. First thing, love for one another proves spiritual life. This is what John is telling us in verse 14. We, brothers and sisters in Christ, the children of God, 
have passed from death into life because we love the brothers. Well, which happened first? If you just start loving your brothers, that will make you pass from death to life? No. But because you have passed from death to life, this proves itself in your love for one another. Do you see it? So, our love for one another proves our spiritual life. And what is this called? In theological terms, this is called our regeneration. That you have been reborn. It proves spiritual life. Before you had spiritual life, what did you have? You had spiritual death. Into what condition were you born in this world? Spiritual death. What did you need? Spiritual life. This is Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus, right? What must I do? What's going on here? Who are you? You need to be born again. That's interesting. Should I climb back into my mother's womb or how's that going to happen? But we understand that truth, don't we? The Spirit comes in us and makes us alive. And the proof of that life is what? Your love for one another. You see, someone who has not experienced regeneration, life, doesn't even know how to love because they themselves have not experienced the love of God. But when you are regenerated by God himself, you know the love of God, and therefore the love of God, Scripture says, controls us. It takes over us. I just realized how much God loves me. And actually, every day, every day that goes by, I realize how much more love God has for me, so it is continually changing the way I operate. I understand how God loves me more today than I did yesterday, so it changes my behavior. I need to start loving more like God loves. I didn't love enough yesterday. I need to love more today because I realize how much God loves me. It transforms you. But for someone who has not been born again, they don't even get that idea because they've not experienced the love of God. It proves, on the other hand, spiritual death, and that's verse 15. Verse 15 says, Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. We talked about that idea. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. If hate is what controls you rather than love, this proves that you are still in spiritual death and that you have not had a rebirth. You have not been regenerated by God's Spirit. Because if you had, hate would not be controlling you. What would? Love. Now, imperfectly so, right? We grow in it. But what is the overriding theme of your life? Love. Matthew, 20, uh, Matthew 5, 21 and 22. You've heard that it was said of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. And so what did that lead to? People hating one another and wondering, how close can I get to murder without actually murdering him? Right? As long as I don't murder him, we're good. But then what is Jesus' response to that? Everyone who is angry with this brother is liable to judgment. And so Jesus equates anger in the heart towards a brother with murder itself, just as John did. The world will hate us, but we are to be loving to one another. In other words, we should not be like Cain. We're going to end our time together in Ephesians 4. So if you could, I just want to read a text here. Maybe draw some uh, 
draw some concepts together as we're given some encouragement and practical application from Paul. Ephesians 4, beginning in verse 17. If you have a Bible, I want to encourage you to turn there with me because I want you to see it. I want to walk through it together with you. Ephesians 4, beginning in verse 17. If you don't know you're in danger of hating, you're going to be like Cain. If you realize you're in danger of hating, the call to you in faith is to love the way God loved. And don't let that sin rule over you. But to kick against it, and you can by the power of the Holy Spirit in you. Those who don't have the power of the Holy Spirit, listen, they've already fallen off the cliff. They're in spiritual death. And so they're going to do nothing but hate until God picks you up and brings you to spiritual life. Now we can love. Okay, so chapter 4, verse 17 of Ephesians. By the way, if you're a note taker, write down this reference. I, this, this passage really... Um, I have to be honest, when I was preparing for the sermon, this passage just brings so many concepts of this text together. It just it kind of overflowed in my heart. And just, this is what I want, not only for myself, but for us as a church. This is what I want for us. But if we don't recognize the great danger that we're in, this is not going to be us. If you thought it was going to rain today, you might prepare yourself by bringing an umbrella, right? Right? If you knew the power was going to go out, you might prepare yourself by having flashlights and candles at the ready, right? If you knew you're going to be tempted to hate your brother today, you would be prepared, right? Ephesians 4:17. Now, this I say, and I testify in the Lord. Listen to the urgency in his voice. You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. You see, because this isn't us. That's not you. They are darkened in their understanding. They are alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous. They've given themselves up to sensuality, to greedy, uh, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ assuming that you have heard about him and that you were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through, here's the key phrase, deceitful desires. When that desire, its desire is for you. When that desire creeps up in you to hate to anger for a brother. Know this, it is a deceitful desire. You have been deceived. Do not be deceived. Do not love this way. This is not the way you have been loved by your God. So don't love, don't try to do that this way. Don't be angry. Don't hate. No, no, no. Don't do that. That's deceitful. Be loving. Have forgiveness. Have grace. Have mercy but they don't deserve it. Right. Exactly. Neither did you. And 
so he continues. So this is a deceitful desire, but our call is to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. That is to think a different way about it. To put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. That's, that's us. That's who we're supposed to be. So therefore, putting away all this falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. And listen to the next text. Be angry, but do not sin in your anger. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Give no opportunity to the devil because it wants to overtake you. He wants to devour you. But you are called to flee. Flee this anger and this hatred. Run away. Don't let it rule over you. It's deceitful. It's telling you to hate. Don't do it. That's the thing about deceptions, you know. They deceive. You think it sounds good. You think it's right, but it's not. It's a deception. It's not blatantly, you know, glowing. This is bad. This is bad. So do it anyway. No, it's, it's clothed. It's cloaked in righteousness. And you have to perceive it. You have to see through that to see that it's a deception. Your feelings lie to you. Just because you feel like being angry doesn't mean you should. Because you feel like hating them for that doesn't mean you should. So be angry, but don't sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Give no opportunity for the devil. That is, clinging onto that anger is an opportunity that the devil can take to bring you into absolute hatred. So let go of the anger. Anger. Let the thief no longer steal, rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, that he might have something to share with someone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only as for good and upbuilding, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And, and, and this is the part that gripped me here at the end. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor, that word clamor means shouting, and slander, that is putting other people down. Let all of that be put away from you, along with all malice, just all types of evil. And here it is. Here's what you should do. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Why? It says right here, listen, as God in Christ forgave you. There it is. Do you see it? This is how we're to treat one another. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love. As Christ loved us, he gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. There it is. Pulls it all together, doesn't it? Please, today, hear me. Don't be like Cain. Walk in love and faithfulness. Let's pray.